a special interview with New South Wales Labor leader Chris Minns, bad news about burritos, and good news about Georgia. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison, and joining me here on the couch in the Harbour City is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and playwright extraordinaire, my wife and your friend, Van Batham. How are you, Van? Well, obviously, Ben, it's been a very sad week. We had the memorial for my beloved mother, Barb, yesterday, and I would like to thank everybody who sent messages and has been so kind to me, as well as all of my mother's friends and colleagues and comrades who attended the memorial yesterday. Everybody wore purple Uh, We ate a lot of cake, there were laughter and tears, and it was a really, really beautiful way to say goodbye to my mum. Yeah, it really was, really was a lovely, lovely memorial. Um, Van, given that we are in New South Wales, we thought today we would do something a little bit different. Yeah, and speak to the leader of the Labor Party in New South Wales, Chris Minns. The next Labor Premier of New South Wales, with any luck. Well, it's looking pretty good, and I've got to say, having spent 18 months in the state of New South Wales, I think a change of government is more than timely. Uh, Absolutely. And look, we don't normally do a lot of interviews on the week on Wednesday because you and I, we like to have a chat. We like to put our own point of view across. Totally obsessed with one another, I think, is a large part of that, (laughs) Ben. But, you know, leader of the uh, Labor Party in the state of New South Wales, yeah, we're in. We're in. We'll talk to him. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, we talked to him because of the values that he has, because of what he actually has to say. And we thought that what he had to say was worth sharing with our listeners. For those of you who don't follow the New South Wales Labor leader on Facebook, I have been uh, very excited to see a rather overt and explicit commitment from Minns and the party that he leads against privatisation. And if you're a listener of this show, you know that the economic values that Ben and I support are certainly one where there is public control of public utilities, uh, where there are good conditions for public servants, and where government provides the infrastructure of opportunity for communities to thrive. Absolutely. So let's hear what the leader of the New South Wales Labor Party, opposition leader in Parliament, and hopefully the next Premier of New South Wales, had to say when we spoke to him just literally an hour ago today. Well, this is a bit exciting. We have a special guest, and it is Chris Minns, leader of the New South Wales Labor Party and leader of the opposition in New South Wales. And I think, judging by popular opinion at this point, Probably likely to be the next Premier of New South Wales. Welcome on the show, Chris Minns. Thanks so much, Van. It's wonderful to be here with you and Ben, and um, it's good to see you both in the neighbouring electorate of Rockdale. Yeah, well, we're very excited to talk to you because I have been very complimentary on your Facebook page that you are running a pretty intense anti-privatisation agenda. And I've got to say this is a beloved issue of our listenership. It is absolutely a beloved issue. issue for our listenership but Chris you know they've said that being opposition leader is the hardest job in politics uh you're out there with policy you're out there campaigning uh we know that Peter Dutton has certainly made being opposition leader at a federal level look like possibly the hardest job anyone could do what what is it about your approach that's different 
Well, we haven't won anything yet, so I'm sort of reluctant to say, <laughs> say it's all <laughs> it's all going to work out. But um, what we've tried to do wherever possible, and this comes from kind of bitter experience because we haven't won an election in New South Wales for 16 years, but rather than say everything that's going wrong with the state, you know, this is terrible and that's terrible and the government's decisions here and there have been bad, we've wherever possible attempted to say, and here's what we would do differently, um, which means it's more balanced and in a funny way you can be more hopeful about the future rather than being negative and, and, and I guess, opportunistic about everything that's gone wrong. Uh, and my sense is, and I don't know if you both find this as well, whether you're left or right or up or down, most, most people in Australia are pretty hopeful about what's possible and they want people to say, I'm here to fix something rather than everything's terrible and it can't get better. Um, now, you can win the odd skirmish by adopting that approach, but my hope is that we can kind of knit together a good critique of the government that people say, yeah, I'm really, I'm really irritated by that. That doesn't seem to be working and Labor seems to have a better plan. So fingers crossed it works. Well, certainly we've seen that in Victoria that a lot of people who we know who we would probably identify as traditionally conservative voters have voted Labor despite their ideological instincts because of a a vision for the state and a vision of Mm. a future which has economic opportunity and local jobs that actually when it comes down to it, a party that's offering solutions to problems is attractive, whatever your ideology is. That's right. And, I mean, look, just this week we <clears throat> opened up, I think, a front in the next election campaign around urban density and design, and that is you just can't say – I'll give you some of these population targets for Western Sydney. Under the Libs, Blacktown's got to grow by 110,000 people over the next decade and a bit. Parramatta, 127,000. The Hills, 100,000. Camden, 88,000. Liverpool, 80,000. But there's no infrastructure out there. So rather than just point that out, which is what we've done, we've also said we have to balance urban density closer to the city so that we can have teachers and nurses and police officers and paramedics that live closer to the eastern seaboard where jobs, opportunity and transport infrastructure are. And the other part of this is intergenerational equity like if you don't have supply in the marketplace and more often that will be apartments that's got to be part of the mix younger people in particular are not going to be buy are not going to be able to buy or rent in sydney anymore they're just not and they'll head to queensland or they'll head to victoria and they'll start new lives and create communities down there uh, or up there so to the extent that we can say here's something that we do differently i think that's got to be part of labor's story Chris, one of the issues that we know particularly young people face in the workforce now is the rise of the gig economy and a lot of our listeners have pretty strong views about the gig economy and and workers not getting access to rights Uh, and we've seen some gig platforms recently say that that they don't have injuries uh, on platforms because they're all small business people and they're all very happy. You know, what kind of approach can people expect to see from a Labor government that you lead that might be a bit different to that? Yeah, we've, we've really looked at Victoria and some of the legislation they have around the gig economy, as they call it, to strengthen protections for workers who work in that industry. I've seen and, you know, heard from and met with people who've 
had family members that have either died or had or been horrifically injured at work and offered next to no help or support from their nominal employer, but you know their nominal employer says they're just contractors and they have no liability or duty oh, to them. Small businesses, Chris. They're small businesses. They're entrepreneurs. Yeah. It's just not right, and. Um, particularly during COVID, everybody relied on them. They were working long hours in hazardous conditions. Um, I've got to say, you, I mean, the best thing about the Federation is that you can see in other jurisdictions a policy work and apply it to your own area without, say, industry groups or stakeholders going, you could never do that, it'll kill the economy or it'll destroy the industry. So we're pretty big on that, particularly as we're the only mainland state that, doesn't have a Labor administration. There are a lot of other governments to look at and copy from, um, and we're going to implement some of the changes they've made in Victoria into New South Wales, particularly around gig work, get a better outcome for those that work in the industry. I realise that we're we're focusing on the positive, but I've got to say, so in case you, you don't know my full story, my mother was diagnosed with cancer 18 months ago and I grew up in New South Wales but have lived in Victoria for a long time and I've been up here for 18 months caring for my mum and I have started calling New South Wales neoliberal South Wales because I've seen the impact of government policy on things like offshoring and outsourcing and the way that it there has been an attitude from the government that I think has actually worsened over time that you know you you just have to look out for yourself and there are there's you you you're foolish to to rely on systems that everything is up for sale there are ticket clippers everywhere and I found that a really quite frustrating and upsetting experience like there's actually a cultural difference crossing the border from Victoria or from Queensland to New South Wales in terms of you know opportunities and and particularly services and I mean Dominic Perrottet is now there's an election coming and he's not an elected premier is trying to position himself like a centrist and I'm I'm sort of interested to know your opinion on whether Dominic Perrottet, who is a person as a politician, as a character, and as an individual, I would never characterise as a centrist. Do you think anyone's falling for it? Yeah, I guess I guess time will tell. And you're absolutely right. That's definitely, um, without a question, the political strategy of the the Liberals to try and reposition him uh, after 12 years in office. The most obvious example of that neoliberal policy agenda is privatisation and it's been, they've just gone on a bender here when it comes to selling off government assets. So it's $93 billion worth of government assets. I mean, in its broadest and simplest term, you're talking about um, industries, businesses and services that have been privatised to the private sector. Now, let's take one of those examples, toll roads. We've got the most toll roads of any city on earth, according to Sydney University, per kilometre of toll road. And we've got a 100% privately owned toll road monopoly. One company owns all or part of the M2, M4, M5, M5 East, M7, M8, Cross City Tunnel, Lane Cove Tunnel, the Eastern Distributor and North Connects. Now, that is monopoly power and the owners of that, toll road operation will collect 
in net present value, in net present terms, so in today's dollars, over $100 billion from motorists over the lifetime of those contracts. And what happens when you put effectively monopoly assets in the hand of private industry? Well, the, the costs increase, particularly on consumers. And we miss out on the dividends that we used to get from these companies. So that's in relation to toll roads, shifting it over to energy, selling off electricity generation, transmission and distribution has now met has now meant that critical infrastructure, which is so important for the manufacturing base and the economy in New South Wales, is in the hands not of the government, but a private company or several private companies. Now, you probably don't remember this because you were living in Victoria at the time, Van. When they tried to sell the generators, the ACCC took the New South Wales government to court to say, we feel this is anti-competitive and will lead to higher prices. And they went ahead and did it anyway. So now you're seeing astronomical increase in prices, the ability for the government to intervene and help uh, manufacturers, small industries, small business and families is dramatically reduced. And we're all just sort of meant to go along with this. Like this was all part of the plan. Don't you understand? You should sell off things. But what happens when you get to the last asset to sell? How is this, how is this in any way a legitimate economic theory to sell as much as you can? Because at some point you'll get to the very end of that sale price and then you've got an economy that is completely screwed and there's no ability for the government to organise and run uh, utilities or institutions for the benefit of the people of New South Wales. So I just think it's been, I know I'm going on and I'm, I'm sorry about it, but I'm really no, passionate. No, no, we're totally into it. Because I've got to say, I find nothing more amusing politically than to hear Liberals talk about cost of living issues. It's like, well, you've privatised everything you possibly can, so there can't be any government control over the actual provision of services. And you don't believe in raising the wages of public servants, so there's not more money going into the economy through workers to improve cost of living. And you sell off public housing, you don't build social housing, so there's no control over real estate or real estate prices. In fact, your free market ideological zealotry has meant that you have no control over the the economy at all, and yet you're going to turn around and say that you're going to do something about cost of living. It's like how? Through magic spells? Yeah. We saw today, I was just going to say, Chris, we saw today that uh, Senator Tim Ayres from New South Wales, your fellow New South Welshman, said that New South Wales has lost 4,000 jobs just through the offshoring of, of trains from yeah. this state. I mean, that's that's jobs, wages, control of the economy, just totally offshore. There's not really much left, is there? No, it's it's very, very silly. Um, and I, don't, I mean, just on the privatisation stuff, it's not even – we're not even getting good deals for it. So the government sold off Vales Point Power Station for a million dollars. The private owner – Bought it for a million, on sold it a few weeks ago for two hundred million. Oh my god! To a third party, so it's not even like we've got financial wizards that are trying to get good deals for New South Wales taxpayers. We just keep getting hosed, and um, you know we've got to draw a line in the sand. Manufacturing is another good example. We've got train building companies in Newcastle primarily that have been doing it for over a hundred years. Uh, they've got. Enormous experience producing world-class manufactured goods. In fact, on one of the sites, they're in the process of uh, manufacturing bogies to be sent to Taiwan for their transport system, (laughs) and yet they can't get their own government, the New South Wales government, to 
be a vendor. So it's it's insane. But I think we can we can turn it around. It's another example of a policy option that we can take in New South Wales, boost the economy, boost jobs and, you know, have a long-term pipeline of work. It's interesting because, I mean, Ben and I are very committed material environmentalists and it's very encouraging to hear you talk about urban design because that is part of the clean energy future is looking at how our cities and communities function and what infrastructure is there and how we build it. And it's kind of extraordinary to see New South Wales. I mean, I came from a commuter family. I caught the train to go to school. My parents caught the train to go to work. Like a a big part of the identity of Sydney and Newcastle and Wollongong and, you know, big population centres in this state is transport. And yet we've had a state Liberal government here that seems to be at war at the transport with the transport services that actually help this city to function. And yet every environmentalist on the planet, every single person who is talking about comprehensive climate solutions says that mass transit is the way to go. Yes. And I mean, part, this is where we've got to give particularly Dominic Perrottet's predecessor Gladys some credit because the, the, the Metro build and the, the new public transport infrastructure has been important for Sydney, $63 billion, um, and it links different parts of the city to job opportunities and economic growth. The problem we've got is that the major- in fact, nearly all of it other than I think two metro stations have been east of Parramatta. So $63 billion spent from the east of Parramatta to the coast and the vast, vast majority of population growth targets are west of Parramatta. So we're putting as many people as we possibly can where there's very few access points to public transport and as few people as possible where we're investing billions in new public transport infrastructure. And the the, the two are just completely – we've got the situation now where if you live in some of those fast-growing uh, new release suburb, suburbs and communities in the western suburbs of Sydney, It's there's just not the infrastructure in place to cope with the ballooning population. So we've got to have a fair distribution of people. We need to make sure that particularly working people, um, public servants, school teachers, um, service industry workers have got an opportunity to live close to where employment opportunity is and I think that means a better distribution of population in the city and a continued investment in public transport. Chris, can I just uh, touch a little bit on the public health system because we've obviously been going through the health system with Van's mum recently uh, and, you know, every health worker we saw, lovely, hardworking, but overworked, stressed out of their minds, clearly struggling to make ends meet and... And at the same time, it does seem as though they've struggled to get a, a fair hearing out of the Perrottet government. Just wondering what a Labor government you lead would do differently with the health sector for, for those workers and the families who rely on those workers for, for their loved ones and for themselves. Yeah, Ben, good, good question. And, you know, my absolute sympathies for both of you after, uh, over what you've gone through over the last years and it's not easy and I know many families have gone through a really tough period during COVID and straight afterwards and I mean the bottom line here is the health system isn't coping with the pressures. In fact there was data that was released this morning from the Bureau of Health 
information that suggested 60,000 people walked into an emergency department, saw the weight, turned around and left without receiving any treatment at all. And one in 10 patients had to wait longer than 21 hours before being released from an emergency department in a New South Wales public hospital. In Blacktown Emergency Department, we've had 35 nurses leave since Christmas last year, and they're the most experienced nurses, the ones that have been there for decades. And for them, public health administration was a vocation, something that they they believed in, up and left, too hard. And I think the psychic burden for them in many cases, I mean, I've spoken to many nurses and paramedics that say, I've left because there's... I know I shouldn't feel this, but there's a guilt associated with not being able to provide the care that I know patients need because there's just not enough of us and I can't feel this way every night. And who could blame them? They're not doing it to become millionaires. They're doing it because they believe in public service and it's a vocation. So we're proposing safe staffing levels for public hospitals. So that means one nurse to three patients in the emergency department and the ICU and in the regions where we've got major bed block and huge delays for uh, paramedic response times an additional 500 paramedics just for regional New South Wales so that we've got better linkages between emergency situations and EDs in the country health network. It's almost like Chris that you don't think the state of New South Wales is just the eastern suburbs of Sydney. I mean that's a pretty <laughs> That's a pretty cool, pretty radical position to hold in my experience of living in this city. You know, the, the, the thing is that the vast majority of new businesses, entrepreneurs, refugees, new immigrants, um, those studying to become uh, teachers and doctors, and they're all in Western Sydney primarily and in many cases the regions. But focusing on Western Sydney in particular, it's the most exciting, dynamic part of the New South Wales economy, in my view, um, and it just needs to be harnessed. There's, you don't really need to do anything. You've got people from all over the world calling Australia home, desperate to get ahead, but they'd love uh, a society, I guess, not just an economy, but a society that backs them, thinks about them and, and uh, gets behind some of their initiatives. And I'd like to be, I'd like to think that if we form government, we'd be an administration that would look to them to create opportunities, economic opportunities and growth in the years to come. Chris, I want to talk a little bit about education. Van, as our listeners know, is a very proud uh, product of the New South Wales public uh, school system. I am a light in the eye zealot for public education. I was educated entirely at state schools in New South Wales and I get really smug about it. Really smug about it. (laughs) So... Um, but, you know, again, we've seen, we've, we've spoken with the teachers, uh, members of the Teachers Federation. Uh, again, they've struggled to get that kind of fair hearing uh, as workers coming together as a collective to say, we're professionals, we know what we're doing, we, this is what we need in our schools. We want to do that job of educating people so that they can make a contribution to our community. I mean, just look at Van, um, or maybe maybe Van's the argument for why Dominic Perrottet doesn't listen to teachers and doesn't like public mm-hmm. schools. I don't know. <laughs> you can take that either way. Um, but you know, again, what can what can people expect to see um, from your government, uh, assuming you get to form government in March, when it comes to comes to the public school system? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about 
public education in particular. In, in my view, it's the reason why we do have a meritocratic society and that there is, you know, opportunities. We don't have this class stratified society that doesn't matter what your parents did for a living, you can do anything in Australia. I mean, that's not universally the case, but I think it's far more, um, far more, there's far more opportunities for it in Australia than any other kind of Western liberal democracy I can think of. And I think the big reason for that is our belief in public education, a world-class public education provided by the New South Wales government. My dad, public school teacher for 40 years before he retired and when I asked him why he became a school teacher, he said he was that baby boomer generation. He graduated high school in 1969 and, you know, within three years Goff was uh, prime minister and there was a real sense from him and his friends that they wanted to give something back to the public to be like the genuine best um the best example of public service and genuine pride in being a public servant. And at the time you could do that and earn a decent enough wage to raise a family in Sydney or the suburbs in Sydney. That is no longer the case and no one should pretend it is. And that dream or that bargain for the next generation where, you know, you get a job, you'd work hard, but you could have a slice of Sydney is just completely gone. So a few things we're going to do, we're getting rid of the public sector wages cap so we can sit down with the Teachers Federation or nurses' representatives or other public servants and have a genuine negotiation about wages and conditions. And secondly, we're going to convert 10,000 teachers who are currently on um, temporary or casual contracts to permanent positions in New South Wales public schools so that they know that they are wanted in that school next semester, next term, next year, and there can be some certainty and those individual teachers can build a career within that institution. At the moment, that's not happening. So we've got a long way to go and I can't promise Ben or or Van that I'm just going to click my fingers and we'll turn it around, but it's an institution we have to protect and it's a bit of a cliche, but we don't see it as a spend on the budget. We genuinely see it as an investment in, you know, the next generation. The Finnish uh, Prime Minister, Santa Marin, has been visiting recently and the the Finns obviously have a reputation for the best public education system in the world. And I don't know if you know this, but they they were assessing what their strengths were as a society. They were doing a bit of, can you imagine, nation building, incredible, some decades ago and looked at what the resources of Finland were. And they were like, we're not an oil producing country, you know, we don't have various resources but what we've got are a lot of brains and the motto of their education system was don't waste a brain they actually thought of young people as the most important resource in their economy and that's why they invested in the system that they have and I just find it extraordinary like at the time that I went to school and I was a high school student um, for the period of Rodney Cavalier and the New South Wales State Labor Government of the 1980s. And I got a world-class education and it took me, like a kid from Hurstville and the deep, dark burbs of the south in Sydney, all over the world. And I just, it breaks my heart to see what has been such poor treatment of not only teachers as individual workers but teachers as a community and education more broadly 
as it's been like watching years of just squandering one of the most precious resources that New South Wales had. Yeah, I think that's right. And I didn't mention this earlier, but part of our challenge will be building up the profession and putting teachers at the centre of our community. But at the moment, the Minister for Education has accused teachers and the Teachers Federation of being in a conspiracy against teachers and against students and not interested in educating the next generation. And, I mean, like a litany of assault on the teaching profession. Now, if you're a young person and you're graduating high school this year and you could literally do any job you wanted with effectively full full employment in Australia, why would you be a teacher? Mm. If the Minister for Education treats her own workforce in that fashion, so, I mean, as much as anything else, this is kind of aesthetic. Like we want to have a government that praises educators, looks after teachers, encourages those who are in the profession to say, you're doing an amazing job and we want to back you in so that we can act like a magnet to new recruits to say, why don't you consider this as a profession or even a part of your working life in not inside a New South Wales public school? The, the, the benefit, there's not many jobs and I still I get a lot of emails from my father's former students who genuinely say he's the best teacher they've had, and he used to talk, he used to go on about Gough Whitlam and all kinds of inappropriate stuff that probably get reprimanded. <laughs> but there's not many professions where you will have people in your life who say, you know, you changed the direction of my life. Bank, that doesn't happen for bankers. It doesn't happen for. I'd just like to say a public thank you to the teachers of Port Hacking High School, Miranda, who managed to get me into university, which is still like that's like a God-level miracle and only, only the most desperate vocational belief in in public education and service could have turned that ship around, I must say. (laughs) Can I say, Chris, it's been – it's great talking with you because your your approach – to politics is very different to a lot of the commentary that we see, obviously in the media and the cut and thrust of media. Uh, you know, you very seem very person centred. You've got a very different approach. You know, we've talked to a lot of we do a lot of combative politics on this show. That's a lot of what we do. Um, but the idea that you want to bring teachers together, you want to bring public servants together, you actually want to have conversations about how you make things better. You know, you haven't just come on here and, and slammed everything the Liberals did. You actually, I think you actually praised something that Gladys did and, and sort of supported that, uh, which is unusual for, for op- oppositions in this day and age. Let's edit that bit out. We've still got an election to win. So. <laughs> but, but it's refreshing. It's refreshing to say, look, they've done some things. We'd do them better, um, but it's refreshing to have somebody say Thanks, we want to put people together. Mm. No, I appreciate yeah, it. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you both. Thanks, Van. Thanks, Ben. Well, look, Chris, we, like I said, our listenership is really, really opposed to privatisation and has seen decades of the privatisation experiment failing. Mm. And for, you know, a party of government to come along and say, actually, we're going to turn it around, like these are the things that we know about how an economy works, 
selling off your power systems is not it's not economically smart it doesn't create opportunity it doesn't reap rewards it just hands you know public resources to private operators and the public suffers that's a really important message to give to a population that overwhelmingly survey after survey after survey is opposed to privatization and sees the value in public institutions 100 percent couldn't couldn't agree more and uh, those public institutions are important. I mean, we've got a mixed economy. We want the private economy to grow and thrive. We want economic growth. We, we see that as really important for New South Wales. But when you sell off all of these assets and the private owner of it jacks up the prices, not just for mums and dads and regular people, but for other businesses, I think it clogs the arteries of a, in many cases, clogs the arteries of a, you know, well-functioning economy. And that's what we need right now. Chris, we'll give you one final word if there's any message you'd like to leave our listeners with this close to the election uh, and then we'll let you get on with your day. Um, look, the only thing is we've got a big mountain to climb for New South Wales Labor. We're, we're out of the practice of winning, if I'm going to be really honest with you. And we, our party, the Labor Party, has been around for 130 years and it, it, there's a lot of talk about social media and community broadcast media and all the rest of it. The truth is it's one-to-one communication, someone that believes that the state should have a change and has an active conversation with someone else about being part of that change. And if we can convince you and you're prepared to convince one other person, then we've got a really good shot in March next year. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. All the best. You know, you've got our vote uh, and our support and hopefully all of our listeners will get on board as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. All the best. Wasn't it great to hear from Chris Minns, leader of the Labor Party, and what a great government New South Wales will have with Chris Minns and Labor, hopefully after March, Van. I've got to say, we usually do an environmental good news story at the end of this podcast every week. And for me, it's an environmental good news story to have a candidate for the highest office in New South Wales talk about prioritising urban design, uh, local jobs, local supply issues, mass transit. Like, it's actually that material infrastructure Mm. that is the transition that communities need to you know, a climate safer future. And that's really exciting for me. That's a good news story. It's also quite honestly awesome to have somebody who's running for Premier in New South Wales whose dad is a public school teacher. And that shouldn't have to make as much difference as it is, but it does. You know, either you are committed to public education as a universal social good that impacts everybody, like educating people to the highest possible standards within a public system improves everything in society. And to have that commitment is really important, especially when it comes from such an authentic place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the just the approach to, say, wanting to work with workers, actually deal with the issues that working people are facing, you know, it's not right. And he said it's not right that that workers can be stripped of their rights simply by being called gig workers, that if you're injured uh, and you're on a platform, you just have no rights. You know, people have... People have literally died to make sure that if you're injured at work, you are not left high and dry, that you don't lose your home, that you don't become homeless, that you don't fall into absolute poverty. Uh, And so to hear Chris Minns talk about that a government he leads is going to address some of those issues, that's going to work with other states and other jurisdictions to address those issues too, I think that's a really positive 
uh, approach to dealing with job insecurity uh, at a state level. And and frankly, you know, whether you're uh, whether you're already going to vote Labor or not, you know, you need to be a union member because we've seen in New South Wales in particular how brutal a Liberal government can be and how reactionary employers can be, and we'll talk about one of those in a moment, if you're not in your union and don't have the collective strength. AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, you can join online right now. And, and let me tell you that right now, one of the other things that's happening, not just in New South Wales, but right around the country, is that Pampas workers are campaigning for decent wages, decent conditions, some job security, uh, because their employer is really trying to to break down their rights and strip them. They're actually on strike at Pampas. And thank you to our comrades at the United Workers' Union uh, for bringing this to our attention about some, some broader issues. Because, of course, the treatment of workers for one company affects affects everything across the economy, you know? Like, we're only as strong as those who are fighting the hardest the most. And, of course, I have had some extremely personally devastating news on the Pampas front, which is Zambrero, which is a Mexican food franchise. Mm. Ben, how would you describe my attitude towards Mexican food? Oh, look, you love Mexican food to the point where I sometimes worry uh, about your health uh, both physical and psychological. I'm very devoted to burritos for every reason, from the nutritional to the spiritual. I connect with burritos and I have been known to purchase, you know, somewhat habitually the products of the Zambrero brand because they position themselves as an as ethical, ethical business. Yeah, they do. And, you know, if you're going to eat fast food burritos, ethical fast food burritos are the way to go. Unfortunately, it turns out that Oso Ethical Zambrero Who um, are they one of the biggest customers of? Pampas. Pampas, who exploit their workers, who are resorting to industrial dirty tricks to try and break the strike of the workers for that particular company. Zambrero, trust me, you need to sort this out. You need to apply pressure to Pampas to work with their workers for an equitable solution because otherwise you have lost a fairly significant income stream in the form of me. My withdrawal of my custom from your business alone, can I tell you, I I mean, it's galactic. Look, we're in conversation, obviously, with workers who are involved in this strike, who are being targeted by this particular company and the corporate executives that run it. We're going to have more detail about this particular industrial dispute and how it impacts up and down the supply chain. You know, companies who claim to be ethical do have to look at what's going on in their suppliers. That's absolutely something we expect them to do. Uh, and we'll have more to say about this on next week's episode of The Week on Wednesday when we've had more of an opportunity to talk directly with workers about what they're experiencing on those picket lines, in those actions, uh, and in those campaigns right around the country because they are taking this to the customers up and down the supply chain to say, are you aware this is happening? Because I think most people would not be aware, but we'll have more detail about that next week as well, Van. Yeah, and I will be going out without Zambrero burritos because that the solidarity with working people and union members is more important to me, and and that's on you, Zambrero. Sort it out. You pressure Pampas. You want to be an ethical brand. Live up to it. And, of course, 
you should be joining your union. If you're hearing this going, I can't believe that there's an ethical brand that's allowing the mistreatment of workers in its supply chain. Unfortunately, this happens far more often than you might think, certainly more often than we would like. And the number one way we can stop that from happening is by being in our union. You go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. It's the perfect Christmas present for yourself, for your family. It's a tax deduction. For your workmates. It's a Christmas present that benefits the whole community and it's a tax deduction. So, I mean, how good is that? It's pretty good. It's I mean, pretty it's, good that's an ethical gift. That's an ethical gift. Yeah, as opposed to a tainted burrito. <laughs> Absolutely. I will not eat ethically tainted burritos even if I love burritos. Look, Van, let's talk about some good news. Obviously, Chris Minns will win the next New South Wales election, we hope. We'll get out there. We'll help make that happen. Everyone needs to do that. We're going to resolve the issue with Pampas. We're going to support those workers. We're going to see industrial justice done. But I'd in, like to point out Ben is fisting the air while he <laughs> says this. He's got his little fist up in the air. But in Georgia, the great state of Georgia. In the great state of Georgia, the great purple state of Georgia, words I never thought I'd live to say. Yes, the great state of Georgia uh, hadn't elected their senator in the midterms because they have a runoff system where unless you get more than 50% of the vote outright, it goes to the leading two candidates to determine which one will carry a majority vote. And this was particularly contentious in Georgia. The two candidates were the existing senator, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, uh, who's a Democrat, who has mm. who won his seat at or his Senate seat just after in a runoff again just after the last presidential election? Um, very progressive, committed guy. He famously is a preacher at Martin Luther King's old church, and you know, social progressive and good person, friend of the labor movement. Mm. I should also say. Uh, and up against Herschel Walker. Now, Herschel Walker is a former professional footballer who played uh, college football for Georgia, won bazillions of trophies. This is some time ago Mm -hmm. um, and has since sort of positioned himself as a businessman, uh, and I say businessman because it's quite a patriarchal approach to the old business practice, not to mention some of the values that Herschel Worker, the Republican candidate handpicked by Donald Trump, um, espoused. He was militantly anti-abortion and said all kinds of fairly inane things over the course of the election, like how climate change was really about uh, the Chinese government stealing people's air. Uh, he gave an extraordinary speech about how he was going to win this erection. Um, there was a speech about vampires that you've really got to see to believe. Well, Barack Obama does, like, Barack Obama is just leaning into the uh, late-night stand-up comedy circuit now because he gave a, a speech at a rally where he talked about uh, this uh, Walker's uh, contemplation of whether it was better to be a vampire or a werewolf. And Barack Obama said, you know, I too have pondered whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf uh, when I was eight years old. Uh, and just so you know, just in case you were wondering at home, uh, Raphael Warnock decided, uh, sorry, uh, Walker, Walker decided that it would be better to be a werewolf. Raphael Warnock was uh, not asked that particular no, question. No, Raphael so we don't know Warnock, where he stands. Raphael Warnock has been busy doing things like capping the price of insulin so diabetics don't die. 
Uh, Herschel Walker, I mean, these are all funny things to talk about, you know, these strange sort of um, stories that he's told and the vampire werewolf thing. But let's get down to brass tacks. He was an admitted domestic abuser who had held a gun to his former wife's head. Um, Despite his extreme anti-abortion position, it turned out that he had actually, he was fairly convincingly alleged to have um, Funded funded some abortions of women who he had impregnated and bullied into getting the procedure. He had more children than he was declaring publicly, um, despite, you know, mm, his family values. his family values and the rest of it. And of course, he was an election denier who supported the um, Trump lie that Trump somehow secretly won the last, pre- the 2020 presidential election, as opposed to Joe Biden, who conclusively won, mm. and it's not hard to see why. So Walker was incredibly dangerous, had no grip of policy, was an extremist, a hypocrite, an abuser, pretended to be a police officer, said he graduated college, never did. In all fairness, he apparently was, back in the day, very good at playing football. But that's not really the point, and they're not the skills that you need to be an effective representative. As much as I do love NFL, and I do, uh, my father was a very dedicated Green Bay Packers fan. We have the cheese head and the whole thing. That wasn't the team that Walker played for. Beside the point, the point is that, oh, Lord have mercy, Raphael Warnock prevailed. Absolutely. And what this means is that the Democrats have become the very first party since... first. It's the first time a party since the time of FDR has managed to increase the majority in the Senate in one of these midterms wow. when they've lost the Congress. So... Um, the Democrat, the Democrats did lose some congressional mm. representatives. The, unfortunately, the, the Republicans are going to have the majority in the Congress, which is their lower house. Mm. But in the Senate, because of the wonderful victory of John Fetterman, um, mm. you know, another great friend of the trade union movement who got elected in the state, the great state of Pennsylvania, one of my favourite places, um, they now have a majority in the Senate. And what this means is they've got a buffer, so mm. you know, a senator can, can be sick or can be. Yeah, because they don't have the, they don't have the system we do. Like no. if you don't turn up, there's no pair, there's no equaling the yeah. numbers. It is nutty, and it means that Kamala Harris, who's the vice president, doesn't have to babysit the Senate and be there to make sure votes pass anymore and be the the tiebreaker. Yeah. And it also means that the Democrats will control all the Senate committees and it means that they will control the Senate nomination process. So in America, if mm. they're appointing judges or if they're appointing cabinet ministers or high-level public servants, it goes through Senate hearings. And now the Democrats have the majority, they can get their people through. And this is significant because one of the problems with the Supreme Court of the United mm. States was that a couple of years ago, despite the fact that Barack Obama was president and had tapped Merrick Garland to be on the Supreme Court, it was a progressive, the uh, the Senate, controlled by the mm. Republicans, had blocked that appointment and obviously and held it off until Trump got elected. And now, as we all know, that's turned into an absolute uh, quagmire and bonfire of uh, right-wing nuttiness in the Supreme Court. Yeah, and denying women the legal right of control over their own bodies, which, by the way, is barbarism. So very exciting news from the United States. Very exciting news. I think that's excellent good news. And it will mean, in terms of we do normally talk about environmental good news, the environmental good news there is that it means that the Biden environment agenda will still be able to pass through the Senate. They'll be able to have uh, the secretaries of the interior, secretary for the environment, secretary for climate change. All those positions will be filled by people who actually want to have proper environmental outcomes and what a great outcome that is. Now, of course, Van, we always... 
have to congratulate our supporters who have helped us grow this podcast over the last two years. It has been huge. And this year in particular, where we've had so many challenges, uh, we've had elections. Uh, we know people have watched our federal election coverage, our state election coverage in Victoria, uh, you know, in massive numbers. But it's really been our cadre, our Extend the Reach, our Buck a Week and our one-off supporters who've helped fund this, to help grow this. Uh, if you've listened to the uh, interview today and you go, hmm, they might, they could probably use a producer to help them with sound quality. Yes, if you do not make a contribution to the show, and of course we want to keep the show free, we don't Absolutely. want there to be any financial barriers, so obviously it's a voluntary contribution. Uh, our next priority is hiring a producer to help us with sound quality and the increased technical demands on the show. So if you're like, oh, what lovely people, if only their sound quality was better, here is your opportunity to make a contribution. So now that we are in a place to pay for advertising and promoting the show, we can hire someone and pay them the appropriate rate in order to edit our show. Of course, we don't take any money out of the kitty ourselves. Uh, it would just be to help pay for somebody else's time and expertise. Now, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. You can check out the supporter page there. We do post additional links as well, but our cadre supporters who chip in $20 a month, fan, they are... Karina Bali, HNC Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Shane Horsfall, Akivra Boris, Kristen Sikluna... Sorry, yes, Kristen Sikluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNell, Evergreen Vs, Giota, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Justine Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, Ad Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrett, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie, Brash, Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Three. McCabe, Nerissa Simon, at Kettergal, Lauren Ash and their dog Banjo, Matthew Hadley, at Narangaman, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, at Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters who chip in $10 a month are... Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, at Vic M. Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza, at Carriedale 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tradragon, Damien Marley, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, uh, Anna Uren, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K. Not, Love Your Work, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, hello Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadita Hannah, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunk and Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Alone, at the real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You are wonderful people. Thank you all so very much for your support. Of course, we will be back on Sunday with a uh, weekend wrap. Uh, you can catch uh, the, epi- the final episode of the week on Wednesday for the year next Wednesday. You can also catch Van doing a reading of her new play for the Sydney Theatre Company 
Uh, it won't just be Van, it'll be a whole crew. Yeah, it'll be people. a whole cast. Uh, so It's not just me in the corner with the script going, hello everybody, that's not what's happening. No, so you can check that out. There'll be links online. Yeah, the play's called A Fool in Love. This is a rough draft reading, which means that actors rehearse it for a week and then read it from scripts in public. But it's free and it's a great end of year fun thing to do. So Because there's a bar. So if you're in Sydney, check that out on Friday the 16th. Yep. Uh, and... Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.